Amen. I read a a quote about Deuteronomy 4 some weeks ago that stood out to me. It said that Deuteronomy chapter 4 is the theological heart of the book. It's at least one Old Testament commentator's opinion. The heart of the book. Now, it's quite early in the book for something like the heart of the book to be, you know, studied together. Why would he describe it this way? He says that Deuteronomy 4 is the heart of the book because as a sermon from Moses, it explains some of the most important and basic commands or precepts that are fleshed out in much longer application commandments later in the book. Very fundamental ideas are present here. Especially, he says, the idea of Israel as a monotheistic people, meaning that there is one God, not many gods, and that they are to worship this one God and not be polytheistic, which would be the worship of many gods, but instead to see that in God's own revelation of himself, he is the unique and distinct creator of heaven and earth and the only God besides him there is no other. And we've also seen in Deuteronomy chapter 4, the glimpses of really what the first and second commandments summarize. The dangers of idolatry. Don't have any other gods before God. Don't craft an image to look like God. Commandments 1 and 2 are in some ways spoken about already in Deuteronomy 4. What we, what we see happening here with this very important section of the book, it is setting up what the rest of Deuteronomy 4 and into Deuteronomy 5 will do, and that is review the Ten Commandments. Now, in our time, when we get to the Ten Commandments, we're not going to spend one sermon per commandment. We did that in the book of Exodus. Uh, Those messages are available. We will look at more blocks of of text uh, rather than individual commandments. But it is a review being set up by the heart of the book, as one writer calls it. And I think that there's something to that. I feel persuaded that this is among the most important chapters in the Old Testament because of what it teaches Israel. And when we look at this paragraph tonight, this paragraph is the climax of this chapter, even though there are a few other verses that remain. This is the climax of the chapter in terms of the content. It is, as one writer called it, the most important paragraph in the book. So if Deuteronomy 4 is the most important chapter, what's the most important part of this chapter? The paragraph tonight. This, in the minds of some Old Testament scholars who've spent many decades studying the book of Deuteronomy, believe that this is the most important paragraph in the book because of all that it captures. So it's the ability of a short paragraph to distill down in a concise and powerful way very important truths spread out all over Scripture in the Old and New Testaments. Let's look together at three questions to ask in verses 32 to 34. There are some rhetorical questions. There are three questions I think we can identify in verses 32 to 34. Moses has been talking to the Israelites about the dangers of idolatry. And where we left off in Deuteronomy 4, he had been telling the people that should the day ever come, that they reject the law of God and go after other gods, the Lord will remove them from the land. This is, as much as one could even see it in the days of Moses, like a warning in the shape of a prophecy, or a prophecy in the shape of the warning. I think it works both ways. And that he is very uh, poignantly looking down the road at what Israel is going to be capable of doing. Being a people in the land who turn from the Lord. 
And what that will result in is exile. And the dangers of of, uh, idolatry are seen here in Deuteronomy 4. And one of the most important foundational ideas that should stave off any idea of Deuteronomy is that these Israelites had an experience together as a nation at the bottom of a mountain. A mountain on fire, quaking with power and covered with smoke and cloud and darkness, from which came a voice speaking to the Israelites. And according to Deuteronomy 4, they should work out the implications of that. Now, Moses is going to help them. But, but in a way, it's like they should think on that historical experience and consider the implications for what that must mean. And that must mean that as the, if the living God is going to reveal himself to them, then they shouldn't be going after pseudo-gods of the nations that cannot hear or cannot speak. The living God has made it clear who he is. And when they got to that mountain, they came to that mountain after a what? Well, these are the people who walked through standing walls of water on dry ground. These are the people brought out of Egypt after a series of 10 very divine supernatural plagues upon the Egyptian administration and land and livestock. If the Israelites will consider their historical experiences, it will help them understand how it should shape right worship. In other words... If they are an Exodus people and a Sinai people, they must not be an idolatrous people. If the God of the Exodus and the God of the mountain has revealed himself to them, then it would be nothing short of rebellion and treason against the living God for them to go after carved images to worship. It would just be absurd in the most serious of ways. There are three questions Moses wants them to consider in verses 32 to 34. Question number one, verse 32. Question number two, verse 33. Question number three, verse 34. So one question per verse here. In verse 32, for ask now of the days that are past. So he's wanting them to do some reflecting, some inquiry. He says, I want you to think about what's preceded you. And then you might say, okay, well, they've all got some history. They've got some ancestors. They've got some tribal people in their family tree. How far back are we talking, Moses? All right, so ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth. All right, so we're going all the way back, are we? So we're going all the way back. We're going before there was an Israel, before there were patriarchs, before there was an Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I want you to go all the way back, and I want you to think. I want you to ask yourself with the historical record preceding you since the day God created man. And I want you to ask from one end of heaven to the other. It's a way of saying, all right, human history, go all the way back. You're looking at creation, leave no stone unturned. Go as far back as you can historically, which is to creation, and go as far and wide in creation that you can from one end of heaven to the other. Now, you can't get any broader than that. Going as broad as creation and as far back as the beginning of all human history. That encompasses everything. Except God, of course. We're talking about what is not God. All of human history, every inch of creation. He says in verse 32, ask yourself whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. And of course, the answer to the rhetorical question is obvious. He doesn't need to answer it. The obvious answer is, it's never been anything like this before. This is unique. He's wanting them to consider and to reflect on the uniqueness of what God has done. 
we are in the middle of this message, right, that Moses is giving in Deuteronomy 4. So when he says this great thing, what are, we, what are we talking about? Well, earlier in Deuteronomy 4, he's prohibited idolatry and drawn their attention to the speaking God from the quaking mountain on fire. And I think it's confirmed that that's what he means when he goes into verse 33. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire? So in verse 32, this first question is about the great thing that we would label the Mount Sinai revelation. What did that consist of? Well, in Exodus 19, they had been traveling after several months in the wilderness, heading from Egypt to Mount Sinai. And in the mountains of Sinai, Moses is to go to the mountain where earlier he had experienced God with the burning bush. That was Exodus 3. In Exodus 19, the whole mountain will be uh, covered in and consumed by visible manifestations of the presence of God, a theophany, an experience of an encounter with God where there is some sort of visible manifestation that cannot be explained as natural phenomenon. And that in such an experience, the Israelites will draw near to this mountain, though they're not to touch it. They're not even to let their animals touch it. Because of the holiness of the mountain and the righteousness of the presence of God, and God is going to speak to them. That kind of great thing. Now, you can look at that in Exodus, and you can go earlier. Did such a thing happen of that kind of power and scope in the lives of any of the Israelite ancestors? You could go to the days of Jacob or Joseph. You don't see anything like that at the end of Genesis. You rewind a little more to the days of Isaac or the days of Abraham before him. Had the Lord revealed himself to individual patriarchs? Yes. Had anything like Mount Sinai happened before? No. You can search all of creation. You can go as far back to the creation itself. And the revelation of God at Sinai stands like a blazing sign apart from everything else as unique. Has such a great thing ever happened or was ever heard of? When they consider this inquiry, the answer to the question in verse 32 is, no, such a great thing has never happened before or was ever heard of. Question number two, verse 33. Did any people ever hear a voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you've heard and still live? The answer here is focusing in on that great thing that they had experienced. So these rhetorical questions are related, aren't they? This second question is still talking about Mount Sinai, and it's focusing on how at this great thing, what made it great is that God revealed himself. What made it great is not that the Israelites were there. The, the, the Israelites were there. What made it great is that God was there. What made it great is that the living God has made himself known and has spoken, and in these commandments, they hear the voice of the Lord. Moses would hear many more commandments. He would ascend Mount Sinai and at the tabernacle later on from Exodus 40 onward. There would be encounters between Moses and the Lord. What was unique about the Ten Commandments is that all of the Ten Commandments were spoken from the presence of the Lord that had descended on this mountain with power and fire. A speaking God out of the midst of the fire. He says, hey, did that ever happen before? And the answer, of course, is no. There had never been a time where there had been a people hearing the voice of a God coming out of the midst of the fire. But they've heard it. The Israelites heard it. And what these questions are doing is establishing the absurdity of idolatry. If the, it, it's not like this is ambiguous. 
Because part of what the speaking God is going to declare is that they should have no other gods before him and they should not make for themselves a graven image. The first two commandments spoken by the God who makes these pronouncements out of the midst of the fire are to shape their worship. That is question number two. Look at question number three, verse 34. Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation. Now, what are we talking about there? Well, now we're, we're backing up a little more from Mount Sinai, right? We've got to rewind it all the way from Exodus 19 to Exodus around chapters 7 to 12. In Exodus 7 to 12, a series of signs and wonders are being poured out. And the nation within a nation works like this. The Israelites are living in the land of Goshen, owned by whom? They are owned by Egypt. And the Egyptian taskmasters have subjugated the Israelites. And the Israelites have lived many years in servitude and harsh labor. And God took them out. So he's asking here with question number three. Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? Something to keep in mind about the ancient world. Is that in the ancient Near East, gods had different jurisdictions, we might say. Areas and realms over which they were believed to rule. And even peoples like the Egyptians who would have certain gods in their pantheon. And then the Moabites that would have certain gods. And the Canaanites that would worship certain gods. And while one people might call the sun by a different name, their inclination was to worship what was not God and to craft things to help their worship. So in verse 34, he brings up the idea that this God, the God of Israel, went in and took. You know, it makes me think of the words of Jesus where he says that in the demonic realm, these possessed people in his gospel ministry are these possessed people bound by the strong man. And what's needed in order to liberate those bound is one stronger to come in and bind up the strong man and then liberate the captives. Because demonic exorcism is an act of liberation. By the one who is stronger, the mightier one, the Lord Jesus. It is a demonstration of his supremacy. But it is just like the Lord in the Old Testament. Long before we get to the New Testament ministry of Jesus. That in the Old Testament days, the Lord is demonstrating his supremacy. Here is the God of Israel marching in, so to speak, like a divine warrior. Trampling the Egyptian deities. Because all of the Egyptian plagues were in some way associated with the worship of the Egyptians to some kind of God. It's as if all of the gods and hopes of the Egyptians are being turned against them by the judgments and the plagues. The plagues are not randomly chosen. The Lord is demonstrating his supremacy and he's demonstrating the falsehood of all of the Egyptian deities. These supposed gods are no gods. So he says, here's what happened, guys. Let's remember, first of all, our God just went in to Egypt, didn't even ask permission. It's totally sovereign over all things. The Egyptian region, just like all areas of the earth, are under his sovereign jurisdiction. That means he goes in and he takes the nation for himself out of the nation. We call that the Exodus. That's the Exodus of the Israelites. Here they were in the midst of Egypt, and he says, that's my firstborn son. Let them go. And if you don't let my firstborn son go, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. And throughout the plagues, culminating in the mighty exodus, the Lord's supremacy is demonstrated. And in verse 34, which continues with this, he brought out this nation by trials. 
by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, by great deeds of terror. Those are seven expressions, which may have simply been chosen stylistically for the the number itself, that such a great list, trials and signs and wonders, these are not things that are different from the plagues. These are not different from the judgments. But this long list of terms totaling the number seven is giving us this holistic picture of what God did to the Egyptians. There were tests or trials. That idea of trials or tests might be the demonstration with uh, Moses and the staff before Pharaoh and his magicians. So that the supremacy of the staff that turns into a snake and eats up the staff and serpents of the magicians demonstrates God is greater than Pharaoh and Pharaoh's gods. Those trials or tests were not any that Pharaoh passed, but they demonstrated the greatness of the Lord. Signs and wonders are often found together as a term, especially or a phrase, especially in Deuteronomy. Signs and wonders, they're even found as a phrase in the New Testament, as we'll see in a bit. Signs and wonders go together, and these are not natural phenomena, but manifestations supernaturally of the power of God. The living God is making clear that he's God. That's one of the takeaways from our paragraph. How do the Israelites know that Yahweh is the living God? Because he spoke to them and he delivered them. He, they have heard his voice. So they know that these other gods do not speak. It is the living God, Yahweh, who speaks. And they have been set apart for right worship of this God because he took them out of their captivity. So both the Exodus experience and the Sinai experience confirm that he alone is God. They need to think about that history so that they'll think about how to worship rightly. It talks about war. And this idea of war may be picked up by Exodus 12, verse 12, which which talks about Yahweh bringing humiliation to the gods of Egypt, trampling them, if you will. This warfare is conducted by God, not just against the gods of Egypt, but even the forces of the Egyptians who pursued the Israelites. The Lord destroyed them. The Israelites did not triumph because they were a great army. They were panicking at the border of the Red Sea, weren't they? And the Lord led them through on dry ground between walls of water and God and God alone destroyed the Egyptian forces. So in this warfare, it was God showing triumph and supremacy over the gods and forces of Egypt. His mighty hand and outstretched arm are figurative ways of talking about God's uh, movement toward or initiation toward the Israelites to save Think about somebody in a position of peril and they can't deliver themselves and they look up and here is someone who has extended their arm. Take my hand. Take my hand. They are to respond in trust that when the Lord has extended his mighty hand and outstretched arm, he has come to rescue. And so they should flee Egypt under the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night by great deeds of terror. This no doubt involves the many plagues. The plagues of frogs and gnats. The plagues of darkness and the death of the firstborn. All the ten plagues are deeds of terror. And who did them? It says, all of which the Lord your God did. These are all God's wonders. All God's signs. All God's warfare. His mighty hand. His outstretched arm. His signs. His wonders. His deeds of terror. And he did them. Don't miss this in verse 34. All of which the Lord your God did for you. So salvation from the Lord 
has been accomplished on behalf of the helpless, enslaved Israelites. In fact, he did this for you, Moses said, in Egypt before your eyes. So it's not done in a corner. Nobody woke up the next day and looked around Egypt, plague after plague, in, in the, among the Israelites at least, unaware of what would be bringing about such incredible and vast in scope judgments. This is God's work, plague after plague after plague after plague. God did this before your eyes. So those three questions in verse 32 and in verse 33 and in verse 34 are three rhetorical questions and the answer to all of them is no. In verse 32, had there ever been such a great thing as happened or was ever heard of? No. Verse 33, did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the fire? No. And did any God at any time and anywhere in the corners of creation, in verse 34, go in and take a nation for himself? No. Only the living God. Very powerful historical reminders with those rhetorical questions. And then in verses 35 to 39, in verses 35 to 39, we're going to see the purpose of God's action in Revelation. What's the purpose behind this? We've seen the uniqueness of it, but what's driving it in verses 35 to 39? The purpose of God's action in Revelation. To you, it was shown so that, here it is, so that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. One of the right conclusions they could draw is that there's no other God but the one who has just spoken and saved. That's the God. That's the living God. They're they're not relying on, you know, you don't see these Israelites saying, all right, I'm not sure who the living God is or what evidence there would be for God. They're not even thinking about arguments for the existence of God. Can somebody give me an argument from design? Or what about the moral law? Can somebody argue for the existence of God? The mountain was on fire and quaking, and a voice spoke to them out of the fire. That is sufficient evidence for them. The existence of the Israelites is an apologetic, you see. An apologetic or or a defense for the existence of and power of the one living God. Because in their history, their story of their existence is a nation brought out of a mighty nation, the Egyptians, a nation that was mightier than the Israelites and stronger than the Israelites, but not mightier and stronger than God. By delivering the Israelites, he says in verse 35, this was shown to you that you might know that Yahweh is God. That ought to clear things up for them. So what about these other gods? What about the Ammonite deities or the Moabite idols? Are those things God? Nope, you need to remember. Who delivered you out of the exi- with the exodus and who spoke to you from the mountain? Worship that God. That's the living God. Don't craft some image and don't go wandering in your, in your mind spiritually towards something else. Remember, you were delivered and you heard. You heard words. That's the living God. That you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice. Think about the exalted, transcendent nature of things right there in verse 36. God is not a God born of earth in this sense. In verse 36, the heavenly nature or origin of his voice is to speak of his transcendence. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice. Now the word discipline needs some explanation here in verse 36. Because discipline is often thought of as merely correction. 
You could translate this that he might instruct you or educate you, since that is also a form of discipline. In the book of Proverbs, for instance, God disciplines those he loves, and parents are to discipline their children, and that is not simply reactive parenting where they are meeting out some sort of consequence. Discipline involves also preemptive parenting of instruction and guidance in teaching and education. And in verse 36, he's let you hear his voice so that he might instruct you, that he might guide you. It's like a father-son relationship has been established. Doesn't he call them his firstborn son? Exodus 4.22, you are my firstborn son. Now, if Israel is like a corporate son, what does God do as the faithful spiritual father? Well, he parents. He instructs. He raises and grows and he invests and he loves and he cares and he guards and he reveals. This is what God does in verse 36. He, out of heaven, let him hear his voice that he might educate you. And on earth, he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. So the purpose of God's action and revelation is being disclosed here so that they might know God and grow in their knowledge of Him. In verse 37, And because He loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with His own presence by His great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you. You see, in verse 37, something else precedes the Israelites' exodus. He has loved their fathers. That's an Old Testament way of talking about patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The fathers are those who had, generation by generation, the covenant with Abraham revealed and passed on from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, from Jacob to the Israelites. God loved and chose this nation. He loved their fathers. He chose their offspring. All of that preceded Israel. Part of what motivates the action of God is not only that these present Israelites might know him and worship him, but that he's keeping earlier promises and steadfast love with earlier patriarchs, ancestors of Israel. So he loved your fathers. He chose their offspring after them. He brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. Well, that's the Exodus. His presence leads them out with a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. His great power through the plagues and no doubt the deliverance through the Red Sea. And then what's coming in verse 38? Driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in. To give you their land for an inheritance as it is to this day. Alright, well, they've been remembering and they've been reflecting on some historical events. But it's also going to cultivate within them some anticipation of what they're on the threshold of. What are they on the threshold of? Well, in verse 38, God, the God of the Exodus, will be the God of the conquest. The conquest under Joshua's leadership, where nations greater than them and mightier than them are going to be driven out. Now, how is it that inferior Israel is going to drive out greater and mightier nations? Because they know the supreme Yahweh of all the earth, who reigns and is the living God over against all the false gods who cannot deliver and save. God is going to be driving out nations. They've already been given a foretaste of this. We, around here, we love the names Sihon and Og. We've thought about those kings a lot in the previous months. When we were in Numbers and now we're in Deuteronomy, we heard a lot about Sihon and Og. 
And uh, they'll probably be mentioned again before Deuteronomy's over. In fact, I guarantee it. And in verse 38, when he's talking about driving out nations greater and mightier, he's already shown he can do this. Because the greater and mightier nations of the Amorites, whether in the land of Sihon or in the land of Bashan with Og, they've been overcome and subdued. God's doing all of this to bring you in, in verse 38. So what he does with Egypt is he goes into Egypt and he takes them out like a divine warrior. And then he goes to the promised land and he brings them in. It is emphasizing the sovereign power of God. He brought them out and he's going to bring them in. He's delivered them and he's going to provide for them the inheritance to receive. It is all due to his sovereign grace and power. As all salvation is pictured here in the template and pattern of the mighty exodus. And here anticipating the conquest. Driving out the nations is about the conquest we read about in Joshua. Giving the land for an inheritance as it is to this day. Now in verse 39, know therefore today and lay it on your heart or lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. This is forming um, a little frame with verse 35 this little unit here about the reasons for God's action and revelation. Notice how verse 35 and 39 relate. Verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know the Lord is God. There's no other besides him. At the end of verse 39, the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. The uniqueness of the only God, distinct from all the idols of the land. God is not like what the other nations worship. He's the living God. And the reason they can know that isn't because the other idols have all been assessed and compared one with another in with Yahweh. It's that they were at a mountain that was full of fire and a voice. And the reason they were at that mountain is because signs and wonders were performed in Egypt, followed by a mighty exodus. They have some experiential proof. They've got some evidence in their history. That confirms he's the living God. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart. You know what I take that to mean? They really need to consider this carefully. That's what it means to take something to heart. Not to ignore it. That it go in one ear and out the other or just over the head entirely. But that you take it to heart as in I'm going to reflect on that for a bit. Let me take that in. Let me, let me ponder that. So he's saying after everything I've said, we've, we've reviewed some um, truths about your history, Israelites. We've thought about God's love and his electing power. We've thought about his sovereignty, his supremacy. He says, you need to lay it to heart that the Lord is God in heaven and that you know the living God. And he's God not only of heaven above, but on the earth beneath. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is Genesis 1.1. They are to work out the implications for their worship the truth of God's monotheistic existence. If he is the only God, then any other kind of worship of any other supposed God is wrong. The wrongfulness of idolatry, many arguments to support the wrongfulness of it, the ones in Deuteronomy 4, it's established by their own testimony as a nation. They know this God has spoken, this God has delivered. He says in verse 39, he's God in heaven above on earth beneath and there is no other. 
He says, you need to know that. You need to think on that. You need to lay it to heart. Because if they will lay it to heart, they will be applying to their heart basic theology. You know, the idea that there's one God is not some advanced level class in Christianity. Like, that's such a foundational idea. This is like Christianity 101. We're teaching about how we have been made by the one living God and that there are not other gods besides God. Now, why are there no other gods besides God? God, through his servant Moses, has made that clear, not only in Deuteronomy 4, the Israelites by experience know the futility of the worship of idols and the uniqueness of the power and sovereignty of God. It ought to be crystal clear to them. And he wants it to be pressed upon their heart because what's laid upon your heart affects you. That's the idea. He's saying, I want the truth of the uniqueness and supremacy and transcendence of Yahweh, that he's God in heaven and over the earth beneath. I want that to be laid upon your heart so that that shapes you, so that you think about what that means for your life, that you've been made by this God and for this God and that he's delivered you. So verse 40, the end of our paragraph today it ends with this call to keep the commands of the Lord. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today. That's an interesting logic. The ones I command you, Moses says. Well, why should they, why should they keep Moses' commands? Well, because Moses' commands are not originating with Moses. That's why they've got to think this through. Moses is a mediator, which means when he brings to them the commands of Yahweh, it's not just about obeying Moses. They should keep the commands and the statutes as Moses has told them, because these commandments are the commandments of the Lord. They're his statutes and his commandments, and then it may go well with you. That's why they're to keep them. It's for the sake of their soul's good, both in the present and in the future, that it may go well with you and with your children after you. You see, the law reveals the good and wise commands of God for the flourishing of our souls and for the right path of growing in wisdom, not destruction, and to reject the ways and knowledge of God, to suppress the truth of God, to rebel against what God has made known of himself, is to embrace the consequences of sin, death, and destruction. So he says, well, I don't want that kind of path for you in the latter sense. I want it to go well with you. And that means if you lay God's commands to heart, if you consider what it is that there is the God of heaven and earth who has made you, redeemed you, and revealed himself to you, then you lay it to heart and keep his statutes and commandments. That it may go well with you and with your children after you. Ah, you see, one of the reasons they need to think about the commands of God and learn what it means to follow God is there's going to be a generation coming up after them. And they've got to think about that. They can't just think about, well, you know, I just want to do what's good for me and what I feel is. They are, they are to have a long-term view of their lives. That the way they live and how they conduct themselves and how they pursue and learn the Lord, this is going to impact those coming after them. They can't take that lightly. There's a real responsibility there that he's laying upon them. It's not because all salvation depends on them. It's to say they are responsible for proclaiming the deeds and wonders of the Lord. They have seen it, and there will be those following them who have not seen it. And they must know. 
They must know of the dangers of idolatry and of the truth of the living God, who's the God of the fiery mountain and the God of the Exodus, and that they're to worship him and that there's no other God besides him. So he says that it may go well with you and with your children after you and that you may prolong your days in the land. Prolonging your days in the land sounds a lot like where we left off last time we were together. Because if they reject the law of God, they have exile in their future. So much for prolonging their days. Their days will be cut short. They will be exiled out of the land under divine judgment to a foreign power to serve foreign gods. But if they will worship Yahweh, His blessing will be upon them and the flourishing of their lives in the land will be their future. They will prolong the days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. So they must seek the Lord or they will face the consequences of their sin. Now in the fullness of the biblical storyline, the placement of Deuteronomy 4 is interesting. In Deuteronomy 4, we are learning that this is the God of the Old and New Testaments, the living God, the only God, the only God there is. And He... In the mighty exodus is making himself known. The fiery mountain, the mighty deliverance out of Egyptian captivity before that, and to all the patriarchs through the various dreams and visions that they had experienced. If you add all of that revelation together, though, it is outweighed by what we read in the New Testament. It is outweighed by the birth and advent of Jesus The advent of Jesus Christ is the incarnation of the Son of God outweighing the fiery mountain, the mighty exodus, the burning bush, every dream and vision ever received previously by any patriarch. Christ Jesus is the culmination of every revelatory word from God. He's called the Word. The Word became flesh. That had never happened before. So we could take some of those rhetorical questions, you know. And we could say of the ministry of Christ, well, has has such a thing ever happened before where the Word becomes flesh and the Son of God is born of the Virgin Mary? Has anything ever happened in the history since creation of man and in every corner from one end of heaven to the other? And the answer in light of the incarnation is no. There had never been anything like that before. In the Old Testament, the Exodus and the Sinai encounters were the defining, identity-shaping realities of what it meant to be the people of God. But in the New Testament, it gets better. In the New Testament, the people of the Lord Jesus Christ are those who are experiencing not a fiery mountain, but the voice of the very Son of God tabernacling in their midst. In fact, in John chapter 20... The ministry and miracles of the Lord Jesus are called signs. Now, why does John choose that word? It's an Old Testament word. That's why. Signs reveal. Signs are used as language first in the book of Exodus, where God is bringing deliverance and rescue. Now, what's interesting about the use of the word signs is in the book of Exodus, those signs were signs of judgment. But in the New Testament, these are signs of transformation and restoration and healing and deliverance. I mean, there were frogs and gnats and Nile turning to blood, but you turn to the Gospels and the dead are coming alive and the hungry are being fed by the thousands with few loaves and fish. 
and the lame are walking and the blind are seeing. These are signs where no greater signs had been performed in the Old Testament. There is a greater a greatness of this in salvation history. John tells us in John 20, verse 30, Jesus did many signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe. It makes me think of our passage tonight in Deuteronomy 4. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there's no other besides him. What are all these miracles of Christ to testify about? Of the truthfulness of his person, work, his origin, his claims, the veracity of all that he's taught and said, and all that he's promised to do at his second coming. John says, these are written so that you might believe. That's why you're looking at these signs and these miracles of the Lord Jesus. Then you get to the book of Acts. Well, the book of Acts loves the phrase signs and wonders. Now, where is the phrase signs and wonders rooted? Not first and foremost in the New Testament. It starts in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus and in the book of Deuteronomy. God was a God giving signs and wonders, and it demonstrated the truthfulness of who he is over against the false gods of the nations. So what about these disciples? Let's take a look here in Acts 2. In Acts 2.22, Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. It's like Deuteronomy 4. Didn't God, Moses says to the Israelites, do these signs and wonders before your eyes? He did them before your eyes to confirm the truth of who he is and not these false gods of the nations which can't hear, speak, or save. And the miracles of the Lord Jesus had an attestation purpose. They were to attest or confirm the truthfulness of who he is. Not only the truthfulness of the Lord Jesus, but the ministry of Christ performed by his apostles. In Acts 5, we're told in Acts 5.12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. What might be the purpose in the book of Acts of the apostles performing signs and wonders that the greater Exodus and the greater Moses has come and his name is Jesus. And that the signs and wonders were not signs of judgment or condemnation, but signs of deliverance and liberation and restoration and life. That's what these signs and wonders were. You read in the book of Acts, how are they to know that they shouldn't worship the God of, the, of Athens or the God of Rome or the gods of the Ephesians? Because the signs and wonders of the apostles confirm the truthfulness of their message that the living God has drawn near to them in the person of Jesus Christ. And they're to trust Him and no other gods. No other gods are performing signs and wonders. It's Yahweh. And Yahweh alone. In Acts 14, verse 3, So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Think about the purpose there. Granting signs and wonders, bearing witness to the word of His grace. How do they know they can trust the gospel? Because works had been performed in their midst that these apostles are not acting by their own power, but in the name of the living ascended Jesus. So what I love about passages like Deuteronomy 4 is that it situates us as believers in the ancient truths of the truth of a living God who's made himself known to a people and has confirmed 
the truthfulness of his presence by his mighty deeds and wonders. But along the timeline of biblical history, it is surpassed by the advent of Christ. So we look at the book of Deuteronomy, and the first readers of Deuteronomy were all pre-advent of Christ, right? Here they are, ancient readers. Lord Jesus hasn't come. He's still hoped for. We have both the Old and the New Testaments, and so we see that the living God, who did these amazing things at a mountain on fire and delivering them out of the Exodus, oh, wait, wait till we saw what he would do with his mighty hand and outstretched arm at the cross. Wait till we see what he would do when he tramples death and overcomes its sting and ascends in power with the name that is above every name. The ministry of the signs and wonders of the apostles confirmed the truthfulness of Christ. So when we see Deuteronomy 4, we can say indeed that the Lord alone is God. And we can give thanks for the Lord Jesus who has come as the living God drawing near to us, speaking not with a voice out of the fire, but in a voice of one who grew up in Nazareth, a voice, a human voice. Speaking to disciples, come and follow me. I'm the bread of life. I have living water. I'm the light of the world. I'm the true vine. Who talks that way? God talks that way. Let's pray.